Hello, I'm Evan Reese, an Asia-Pacific analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is being brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. It would be catastrophic for humanity as a whole if we have a massive war in space, almost at the same level as a nuclear war, because we are so dependent on these space constellations, we will lose basically all the advantages that we currently rely on for a high-tech modern economic world. War continues to evolve but not always in the ways that many of us think. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen, and in this episode of the podcast, we delve into the evolution of war from World War I through to today. Stratfor senior military analyst Omar Lamrani and military analyst and director of analyst operations Paul Floyd join us to discuss the shifts in technology and tactics, as well as where current strategic thinking about how nations wage war is leading us next. Thanks for joining us. Omar, Paul, thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So we're here to talk about the evolution of warfare post-World War II. Now, obviously, that is a huge topic, and we won't be able to cover absolutely all the angles here. But I figure let's have some fun with it. Let's look at some of the, the major developments um, by period and by technology. And uh, let's look at some of the ways in which uh, the face of warfare has changed over the last uh, you know, 60, 70 years. Paul, uh, where's a good place to start on this? Yeah, I, I should just also, we should tack on the fact that we should also, since we are strapped for looking forward as well with where we think it's going. So actually, I think Omar is the best person to start this. He's done an excellent job of sort of narrating this by time block. So uh, Omar, why don't you uh, take it off? I would uh, start this with going to World War One and just kind of a preface to this conversation, because that's the really big worldwide conflict that um, was in a mass industrial scale. And, and I think one of the things that's not commonly understood, uh, you know, a perception of World War One is often focused on the fact that uh, you know, the defense had the advantage. And that's why we had these massive numbers of futile attacks that led to massive casualties. Because it took a long time for the generals to know what they're doing uh, and to, to change track. One of the important um, aspects of World War One there that's forgotten is that there's actually been tremendous evolution in warfare in World War One. Artillery tactics, in particular, were developed in a massive scale, and that set the uh, set, that set the really the, the path forward in in going to the, the next hundred years. Just to understand that in in the crucible of conflict. There is going to be change because there, there is going to be developments of weaponry. There's going to be development of tactics. So even in a conflict like World War One, which is often thought of as a stalemate, uh, there has been tremendous developments. And of course, um, Ben, that's where where the Brits came up with a tank and, and various other uh, technological developments. So so I think we can start from there and, and just progress. Um, in that direction going forward. Yeah, I mean, you should jump in. I mean, the, the stalemate was broken at some point. So, like, there was a reason there was a conclusion to that war in a relatively timely fashion, all considering. 
you know, we started to see the prototype of combined arms actually be developed at this point. So using all these different types of weaponry and systems in conjunction with each other, you started to see that. You saw development of infantry tactics to deal with and actual fire maneuver at a smaller level. Um, you saw coordinated artillery strikes with armor. Um, and you also started to see light machine guns that could be mobile with infantry so they actually could respond to heavy defensive fortifications. So all of that sort of combined at the same time to actually uh, advance the war. And I think the most interesting thing about these nascent technologies that really did emerge throughout World War One, the introduction of armor, aviation, radio communications, was how they continued to mature in the interwar years and then really come to fruition in World War Two. And to this day, I'm a little aggrieved that, you know, it was a couple of British officers who kind of wrote the first book on combined arms operations, and they were ignored by the British War Ministry. And then the Germans applied that principle to great effect in the opening stages of World War II. I have a theory, but uh, and I can't prove it, but basically it's because the Germans lost. And usually the loser is much more willing to adapt and break the system and go a whole hog with something that's new and untested um, because they have lost, as opposed to the winner who, you, I would argue, tends to stay entrenched with the old ways, for lack of a better term. Yeah, you know, you guys both brought up really excellent points. Uh, the, the first one in terms of the, uh, the tactics that were developed in World War One were very, very similar to the ones, at the, especially 1917s and 1918s, were very similar to the ones that were taken in World War II. The difference is that the technology in, in 1718 was not there to, to allow the Blitzkrieg-style lightning war that uh, happened in the initial stages of World War II and it's, it took a couple of decades more for the tank to become a reliable machine and a fast machine. It took, it took another couple of decades for those aircrafts, which were already conducting bombing and close air support in 1918 of World War I during the World War I conflict, for them to develop into what we saw with the German Stuka uh, dive bomber. And it took especially w- one of the biggest revolutions that allowed for those tactics that were developed at the end of World War I to become those, those actually offensive operations in in a, in, a, in a devastating manner was the radio. The radio allowed the communications to allow this combined arms that Paul was talking about to become possible because before you had to relay messages through the telephone or, or like these cumbersome wireless. Now you had a tank, each tank had its uh, radio and, and, and suddenly everything is possible in terms of communications. And with regards to your, uh, your points, Paul, about the Germans adapting those tactics because they were losers, uh, I think that's very, very credible, and we can look at the adversary, France, for the perfect example. So France uh, learned the wrong lessons from World War One. They saw they saw the conflict as a huge bloodshed, and they basically said never again. So when they went into World War Two, they adopted a very defensive mindset. They put up this huge Maginot fortification line and sort of forgot that they were also at the forefront during World War One of developing those offensive uh, tactics and those those te- that's offensive technology. That was then adopted by the Germans in World War II to flank them and defeat them in six weeks during the Battle of France. So I think it's really interesting, again, how sometimes you learn these lessons and you forget them. And sometimes because you are the loser, um, you tend to uh, apply these sometimes these tactics and learn from them sometimes even more than the winner because the winner goes back to the to the to the same mindset that they, they've already won. And they will just apply the same uh, same mechanisms to the next war and, and, and sort of learn in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see how the French doubled down in defense and then the Germans just completely came in with a different tack and were wildly successful. And there were some other technologies as well the Germans developed. Like, um, you mentioned, uh, bombing, which, which, you know, with the advent of avi- aviation in World War One, sort of started to come into its own. And we actually did a piece on, you know, Zeppelin attacks, uh, flying across the English Channel, dropping bombs on Great Yarmouth. But the advent of long range bombing as well. And then, 
you know the ability to deliver ordnance and really attack a uh, an enemy's you know heartland and actually make a dent in their their wartime industry was was potent but then again having all these aircraft in the air and the, the the development of radar you know the germans then went one step further to pioneering initially rockets and and unmanned weapon systems that they could put into the air and that led to a whole uh, different uh, evolution of warfare in a way. Well, actually, let me jump in there and sort of weave your points in there, Ben, with sort of something Omar said. I think it's really important. It's going to be a theme throughout this entire conversation, which is technology creating new capabilities for weapon systems and new opportunities to sort of weave all these things together in, in more combined arms and move fires out, extend fires range. Uh, when I say fires, I mean, of course, basically things that go boom and it can be delivered by all sorts of different things. Um, so it's a very general term. Basically, it's really about the relationship of tactics and doctrines that are adapted and as technology advances capabilities and how they all weave together. And also, Omar, we actually really didn't let you finish kind of laying out these blocks and broads. So we, we've actually uh, done the pre-thing to what we said we were going to talk about. So from World War II on, like, how would you characterize this real fast? I would characterize 1945 to the early 1960s as largely the same conventional uh, tactics and the conventional weaponry that was that existed in 1944-45, just beefed up. So, for instance, in the Korean War, um, that was largely fought with World War II weapons. The uh, North Koreans and Chinese had the T-34 tank. They had the uh, Yusuf Stalin tank. The Americans came with Pershings and Shermans. Uh, and, of course, some of the, the jets that, that were becoming available in the late 1945, uh, just improved versions of those were, were used, but, but still using uh, Mustangs and Corsairs and, and, and familiar aircraft from World War II. Where the big change happened during that decade, decade and a half, or, or two decades even, was really in the large focus on the nuclear arena. So you had this nuclear weapons came into, into, the, into being in 1945, as we know, and that was really such a shock that there was even this idea um, in, the, in the United States, for instance, that, that you can use the nuclear weapons in a, in a, in a, in a conventional battle against, against armies, and therefore that would be an offset against superior forces of the enemy. So the, a lot of the investments, a lot of the focus there suddenly became the strategic bomber force in nuclear weapons with the idea that even though the Soviets had more forces in Europe and more, more tanks, etc., more artillery, you can negate that through those nuclear weapons. It's only as we go to the next phase of this period, of the, let's say from the late 1960s to the early 1980s, that that largely changed, number one, because of the uh, Russians themselves developing these nuclear weapons, but also because the, the there was a revolution in the conventional arena, in the conventional uh, warfare, conventional tactics. And, and technology. So that's usually called revolution in military affairs. Uh, we're talking about 1967. There was the first uh, the, the uh, first naval vessel sunk by an anti-ship missile. Uh, 1968 was the first use of laser-guided munitions by the Americans in Vietnam. Uh, and then, of course, during the same period, we had the first use of satellites, communication, satellites uh, um, reconnaissance. And then, of course, you also had the anti-tank guided missiles in, that were prominent, for instance, during the 1973 war between Israel and Egypt. So all of these technologies allowed the uh, United States and, and the Russians to sort of focus again on, on the conventional arena in, in, and really to became the ability to uh, – it's not just about massive numbers and industrial-scale warfare, but it's also the ability to provide – your forces with the with the uh, with the weaponry at a conventional level to negate uh, qual- quantitatively superior forces arrayed against you. So um, I'd like to focus on some of these things in a bit more detail before we kind of move then into the uh, you know the modern era from you know the nineties onward. 
So we talk about, obviously, this development of this sort of nuclear strategic capability. And I think this almost goes in consonant with some of the larger dynamic shifts we're seeing, um, you know, on the global stage. This move from this sort of multipolar world uh, with a lot of different, you know, competing nations and their resources and armies to this sort of like more bipolar structure where you had, you know, these large blocks that were able to like mobilize their resources into this this new realm. So how did we begin to see the evolution of this this nuclear strategic capability? Well, we didn't at first, actually. I, and I think that's something it's really important to unpack for what Omar was saying, which is initially, like, this new class of weapons was envisioned as another conventional weapon, something we would use in conventional warfare, that to his point, where the numerical superiority of the Soviet bloc could be countered by NATO and its allies through just these bigger, larger, angrier weapons that actually could offset that and do more damage. What's interesting is over this time, as the systems got more complicated, uh, got further reach, um, and you started building these redundant capabilities where you could sort of take away a basic build survivability into them. You had second strike capabilities, i.e. this is your strategic bombers that are offset. These are your underwater boomer platform submarines. Um, you know, these are your ICBMs that are placed, uh, you know, back deep in the heartland of these different states. I would argue then at that point you started to see nuclear combat kind of get separated from conventional warfare and you sort of had a separate domain at this point. Uh, and it really moved from a, a, tactical and operational i mean don't get me wrong there have always been strategic weapons but they sort of became less of tactical responsive weapon systems and became more of this its own domain with its own strategic imperatives and and sort of its own level of deterrence it moved into that deterrence space and in some ways you could see how once you sort of locked in this nuclear deterrence at this highest level and yes there are tactical nuclear weapons but most people believe that using tactical nuclear weapons would draw you into a strategic nuclear conflict and once that was sort of established and kind of locked in eventually, it kind of spurred the idea that, okay, now we need to have this, that underlying level of conventional conflict where we're sort of still building on World War II platforms really needs to be looked at and thought out again. How can we get that standoff advantage or excuse me, that, that advantage against volume with our conventional weapon systems because, and, and take nuclear weapons off the table? And so how can we have conflict at a lower level without getting to that highest level of nuclear combat? You know, when, the United, when NATO was arrayed against the, the Soviet Union on the northern European plane, it was not just enough anymore to consider nuclear weapons as a decisive uh, way to counter that. You had to, the United States started considering anti-tank guided missiles in a sophisticated fashion. You had the development of uh, hel- attack helicopters that's, that's would go, that would uh, rip up the uh, Soviet armored formations. You had the developments of, uh, uh, even up into the 1970s and 80s, developments of close air support like, like the A-10 that would uh, be designed to to blunt these uh, these armored spearheads. So it's tactical nuclear weapons were still part of that equation, but it was increasingly relying on this new revolution of technology, the precision guided munitions that were coming into 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 the picture to uh, counter the uh, larger numbers that at the time were were believed the, the Soviets had. So how much is um, conflict, either open conflict or proxy conflicts, how much uh, is conflict a driver to develop this technology? Because, you know, towards the tail end of World War II, the Germans were getting pretty advanced rocket technology. They could fire a V2 and then using inertial guidance, drop it pretty much where they wanted to in London, right? And then that technology then fed into um, development of rockets for the space program. And that naturally trickled over into like, you know, uh, ballistic missiles. Um, but, you know, you mentioned a couple of key dates in Vietnam where there was, you know, this, this technology was coming to fruition and then you had a conflict in which to try out some of this new stuff. Yeah, I think conflicts was a major driver of this technology from World, World War II, obviously being the uh, top 
the most intense level of competition and, and re- revolutionary weapons were being created every six months or so. But even through the Cold War, because of that competition, because of uh, the very serious nature, even though it's never technically became a massive conventional or nuclear brawl, it was it still drove massive technological progress into the uh, armaments uh, realm. So, for instance, I mean, consider the evolution of surface-to-air missiles uh, throughout that period, or jet fighters, or stealth that came into the picture in the 1980s. Nuclear submarines were developed at, at an extremely fast pace during that same period. And I think, I think to contrast that, I mean, just look at post-1990s, I would say there was a, a, a bit of a lull in the pace of development, mostly because, first of all, you had that uh, peace dividend, but it's also a focus on counterinsurgency. So when you have a focus of counterinsurgency, you, you, you start developing weapons that are catered towards that. Uh, I'm speaking specifically to the United States that took the lead on this. But others like China and Russia were playing catch up. And so, yes, conflict and national interests and the desire to stay abreast of your potential adversary definitely drives the, uh, the, the pace of uh, an invention of armaments and weapons. Yeah, I would throw in there a couple of things. Like, first off, you never should look at arms development and sort of, you know, sort of war for overall development, like it's always, always evolving. There's no way that it's not developing. Humankind consistently is improving on different designs and everything else. I look at conflict as a massive accelerator. And A, because there's usually an existential sort of motivator there, obviously, which allows you to dump more resources into it. It allows you to go to your society and say, I need to put all of my brain power and all of my resources to being better at this thing, i.e. making war, um, so we can live and or we can accomplish these goals. So usually what I would argue is most of these large conflicts were large accelerators because so much of the national just resources are being dumped in so many different ways and basically close to total war when you're talking about the world wars. But in, in even past that and a lot of these other even more minor conflicts all considering, you still see the same kind of pattern over and over again, which is you start to discover these things that become very effective. You know, you, you've seen the, you know, uh, I think a great one for more, like the global war on terror, for example, again, not an official actual combat combat in the sense of a declared war other than on this sort of vague concept of terror but we started looking at things and found that like ah isr specifically drones are really really effective at being a persistent thing during this conflict and look how quickly america dumped so many resources into that and you had drones just explode across the thing and then you had armed drones and now it's just it's it's almost this sort of it's accepted as just this thing of part of warfare now. It's sort of like this integration of, of ISR platforms and drones with sort of day-to-day actions with U.S. military troops. Um, and so many other countries were adopting that. But as of like, you know, these things were just weird sort of esoteric things going into 2001. Um, they were sort of interesting kind of aside projects that people were working on that kind of were playing with. And, thinking, and then all of a sudden they went from being sort of these side kind of developed projects to being main front, frontline combatant units. We'll get back to our conversation on the evolution of war and where that evolution is leading us next in just one moment. But if you find this conversation interesting, you should definitely explore our more in-depth analysis at Stratford Worldview. There you'll find historical reflections on key conflicts, geopolitical analysis on current flashpoints today, and also forward-looking assessments on the future of warfare, from the development of supersonic weapons to the implications of space in the global arms race. If you're not already a Stratfor Worldview subscriber, you can register for free limited access to our analysis or subscribe for complete access to our 20-year archive of analysis and strategic forecasting. You can learn more about individual, team, and enterprise-level access at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now, back to our conversation about the evolution of war with Stratfor's Omar Lamrani and Paul Floyd. There is a constant development 
but there's also a cost to um, unless you're in a total war and then you're throwing resources at, at essentially everything like World War II. Generally, what you're doing is you're you're throwing resources and development into areas that you think are going to be uh, the most necessary or the most useful to you against your adversary. So I think this this is, brings us to the current day and, and really to talk about something that's really important going forward is how the United States has focused on on equipments and tactics and training that's really conducive to this war on terror, uh, war against non-state actors, insurgencies, terrorist groups, etc. And that has really given about a decade to two decades to, to uh, major powers and great powers like China and Russia to tr- really try to catch up. And, and, and so we've seen them put major resources and, and with our, the growing economy of China and with the resurgence of, of Russia to a certain point, they have been able to get close to a certain point. And so this is where this is where we can tie it to um, to the rest of the conversation that we've already had, in the sense that the United States is now considering a third offset, and this is particularly the case with the previous administration, Bob Work. He he tried to push this, and, and but it's not the terminology is kind of gone, but it's still very much there. It's the idea that in the 1950s you had the uh, nuclear power, nuclear capabilities as an offset against Soviet armor and Soviet conventional qualitative, uh, quantitative uh, superiority. And then you had the 1970s and 80s, you had the, the uh, revolution military affairs. That's considered the second offset. Again, technology in a conventional sense to provide you that qualitative edge to go against the quantitative superiority of the enemy. And now you have this recognition by the United States that the Russians and the Chinese are catching up and there, there is a need for a third offset. So the third offset that we're looking at right now and it's uncertain how it's going to play in the future and who's going to win this race, but it's things like AI, artificial intelligence, robotics, um, nanotechnology, all these things that take what we have already ha- learned from the revolution in military affairs and really elevate it to, uh, to the next level with the, these new emerging technologies, including hypersonics and, and all of that. So that's the new race here. And it's really uncertain who's going to win because while the United States could really crush the Russians in this competition in the 80s because they're much bigger and NATO as a whole, much bigger economies that could d- devote a lot of resources to this technology and the development of it. We have, for the first time, uh, in a long, long time, a country like China whose economy is basically a, a peer or nearly a peer of that of the United States. So in terms of being able to, d- to pour those resources and the necessary technologies, this is a different type of threat that the United States faces in the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was always at a negative or at a disadvantage in terms of that having that capability to pour resources in, into these technologies. Now China appears to be able to. So that's that's the big question going forward. Who's going to win this race amongst economically equivalent uh, powers? Well, and the one part of this is the U.S. is a huge head start. But to, to Omar's point, the U.S. has been very distracted at some level um, focusing on the global war on terror and has not been thinking about peer-to-peer conflict as much. And that's sort of been a sideshow. And if you look at sort of all the major platforms when you think of aircraft um, and you think of armor and everything else, there's just not a lot of new platforms that are coming out that are strategic level platforms um, that are designed – You know, there's been almost a decade lull and really kind of pushing that where you could fight uh, a, a near-peer competitor. But some other things to, to Omar's, I, I think it's worth thinking about is some of the things in the global war terror actually very much do feed into this third offset. And that's sort of looking at our space-based infrastructure, i.e. our satellites, 
um, our continued evolution of sort of sensors, uh, sensor platforms, communication platforms, and the ability to sort of have a truly global monitoring and and, and communication network that you, really the U.S. is peerless in. So our ability to to basically put somebody in landlocked Afghanistan halfway across the world, and I put my by somebody I mean an army, and leave it there for 17 years and have it be supplied and have it be able to get ordnance consistently um, and bring fires down in disproportionate amount of power for the amount of people actually on the ground is already a start in that direction. And now to Omar's point, it's just who can start to layer on all these advanced technologies that are rapidly coming on board to kind of get that next, I would say, serious jump in capability platforms um, that, that, that really can increase that distance of, of, of fires projection. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And it's also important to note that, um, you know, the US has had certain distractions and the US does have certain uh, natural advantages. But China, you know, it, it's hungry, it's up and coming, and it has this incredible ability to kind of mobilize its population and its resources to support a common effort. And they really have set the bar very high for what they expect of the Chinese military. And again, relating to how these new technologies such as, you know, AI, hypersonics, nanotechnology, you know, um, composites, materials and stuff. You know, the U.S. has the advantage of Silicon Valley and this very advanced, you know, um, R&D capacity and, and um, leading the forefront of a lot of the electronic revolution. But again, we've seen China make huge leaps in this in, in this direction. And also, they're willing to do things that some Western companies simply aren't. Um, you know, like they don't have the same – they don't hold – IP in the same sort of sacrosanct nature that a lot of, you know, Western companies do and will almost willing to subvert the system. And again, they have this ability to scale in a way that few other countries can. So it seems like they are increasingly a credible contender to the U.S. military dominance. That threat or that's a credible contender to U.S. military dominance is becoming more apparent to the United States. And that could end up driving the United States to focus more resources and attention to the issue to stay ahead. So the, the, the trend line over the, net, the last 20 years has been China catching up. And that's easier to do when you're far behind because those technologies are already developed. But now we're getting close to a point, let's say in the next 10 to 15 years, where China is going to have to create its own technology. It's going to have to develop new, new, uh, its own new uh, weaponry that's completely devoid from, from, from the path already trodden. So in that sense, that's, that's I think, is where the United States could have an advantage is that it's going to become more difficult for China to develop forward compared to what it has over the last two decades been trying to do. And the United States is also, secondly, going to be more aware of the threat um, and focus more attention on the on the great power competition and the peer-to-peer conflicts rather than uh, the uh, non-state actor threat. And I think that's those are the two advantages that could keep the United States ahead potentially going forward. And like Paul said, experience counts in this matter. Yeah, I think it's actually really – I mean when we talk about Chinese catching up and eroding U.S. military dominance, that's still very much in a regionalized sort of way. And I mean that in the sense that China is is developing platforms that can beat our defensive networks, that can actually reach out and strike U.S. platforms. They can sink an aircraft carrier with a relatively you know, much cheaper missile sets um, in many instances. And so our ability to project power into China's regional area – is becoming very much diminished, and that that is that is very much taking the biggest hit in this sort of catch up or this gap uh, shrinkage, if you will. The the next big step for China and the huge investment, I think their biggest catch up is their ability to project power, their ability like to have a you know space based global reach network system of satellites and systems that all they can all do the they do the things that the U S does right now. They're not there yet, and they they're they're touching them, they're 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 developing them, but they're, we're talking about trillions of dollars of investment over years to really start to kind of be in parity with the U.S. on this, for example. Now they know this to a certain degree, and to be fair, they are developing systems that can actually screw with our space-based infrastructure. They have anti-sat capabilities that can actually start to mess up the dominant, like one of our biggest single advantages. 
Um, and there's sort of a, a disproportionate disadvantage for the United States right now because because they don't have space-based infrastructure and we do. That's something that they can really cripple us and actually hurt take the take the legs out from underneath us in any kind of conflict right now. And that, that's so it's kind of a weird mixed bag here. But point being though that China has an advantage if it talks about fighting in its own neighborhood. Its ability to start going toe-to-toe with the United States when you talk about conflict across the globe, very much different. I think that's where the, the gap is the largest, if you will. And on the space uh, the space question, I think there's a really interesting point in, in that direction as well, is that the Chinese are catching up with the United States and sending up these satellites and creating these constellations. But the more they do so, and the more they catch up to the United States and create the same type of network, the less likely it is that or, or that they would attack the United States uh, space uh, assets or to rephrase that, the more damaging it is to them to do so because they are putting the same type of vulnerability up in space that the United States has. So if, if you think the Chinese are really good at intercepting satellites and destroying them, well, the United States is even better. So if the Chinese get to that point where they have that constellation in space, they are creating the same type of vulnerability that the United States has. So they are going to think really hard in, in, in a decade or 15 years when they will have that same type of constellation, whether it is worth it for them to attack that space asset, because they are basically, as they're evolving, becoming similarly dependent on, on having that infrastructure as the United States is now, except that, you know, obviously they're more focused on the regional scope rather than the global scope like the United States. Yeah, that's a great point, Armour, because basically, in my mind, you're creating satellites are going in, in conceptually in the same way nuclear weapons are going, which is you either create mutually assured destruction specifically on these assets um, or you create deterrence. Um, so you kind of have almost basically just parity. Um, which, so no one really gets the advantage in, in, in this case, uh, from here on out. But then that begs the question, I mean, we're not the only people that know this, and a lot of really smart people on both sides are looking at this and saying, well, if we want to try and win, how do we build, you know, are there other systems that can be non-space based that are more defensible? Um, can we create redundancy in satellites to make them a lot cheaper? Um, and much, much harder to shoot down in the, you know, hundreds or thousands. So there's like basically have a redundancy in these space networks. So like, yeah, that, that's sort of the future as we look forward is basically everyone's looking at this and saying, yeah, this is where part of this, this, this arms race is going to be is frankly going to be in space. Even if it's not weapons in space per se, it's things that facilitate weapons on earth. Um, and they're very, very important. And how do you defend them or create deterrence around them? Um, or how do you fight without them and actually still be just as, maybe part of the next big offset is actually learning to get past space based, uh, infrastructure and be, you know, it, from your own territory, being able to monitor, have sensor platforms that can allow you to shoot and, uh, kill the enemy. Yeah. Well, actually, well, to, to those, to, to those two points, uh, the United States is actively working and ahead of China in developing microsatellites, uh, which the idea that's, uh, it's, it's shoot them up into the space. They're cheap. You, we, uh, you use them for, for the time necessary. And then it's okay if you lose them because they're not very expensive. Um, so, so that's ability to, even if you lose your constellation in, in an emergency, you just pump out these microsatellites into space and then they're good enough for what you need. That's one way. And then for, for getting away from space completely in, 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 uh, if you really have to, there's also developments of high flying drones that can act as a relay station. So almost at the orbital level, and then they basically have these satellites-like payloads that can relay back uh, navigation or, or information, obviously nowhere near the same level as in accuracy and, and sophistication as a constellation of satellites in space, but enough to do the job again. But, but again, I think it's, it's, it's also similar to the nuclear deterrence thing in another sense. So there's also the massive, massive, massive economic damage and just – it would be catastrophic for humanity as a whole if we have a massive war in space, the same, almost at the same level as a nuclear war, because we are so dependent on these space constellations 
that if we're talking about the aspects of this getting hot and then you have a massive conflagration in space, we will lose basically all the advantages that we currently rely on to uh, for a high-tech modern economic world. So very much similar to what, what we were talking about earlier with regards to nuclear deterrence. We're getting to a paradigm where it's the ability to hurt each other equally and by hurting the other person, you're also hurting yourself because obviously there's space debris and all of that. So that's why I think what, another aspect of this is the... Uh, the various efforts to develop a, a space treaty. So we already have the Outer Space Treaty and, and try, attempt to build up on that. So that's, I think, is another interesting thing that will develop over the next decade to two decades. What I find fascinating about this is this seems to be this continuation of a trend we've seen for eons. I pick up a stick and hit you with it, you're going to find a bigger stick and take a swing. And it goes through and then technologies come along and at first they're prohibitively expensive or unwieldy or simply you can't use them in the right way. But then this this cost to entry eventually comes down and you see this evolution of measure and countermeasure and we go back and forth and weapons become increasingly destructive. Um, you know, when you look at like dynamite was the game changing explosive and it was thought to completely subvert the way that wars would be fought and become so dangerous and no one would ever want to use it didn't happen and again nuclear weapons now are almost like ah, it's a given yet there's this other thing that could be far more deadly so it's interesting when you play it forward to see you know what's going to be put in place to yeah call, call me a cynic but i, I never under, underestimate humans capacity to find a way to wage war even if that means eh, we won't fight with these because that'll kill everybody but we'll use this other thing like we'll, we'll find a way to keep fighting one way or another um to your point and i think it's also worth sort of stepping back and and sort of why are we so focused on satellites I think the big point that I always want to articulate with people when I think about what is the modern day sort of evolution in military affairs look like and what is that, you know, what are these offsets? What are we talking about? The best way to think of it is when we talk about fires, when we talk about artillery, when we talk about bombs that can be dropped, uh, missiles, whatever, whatever, whatever goes boom. The most interesting thing that I've observed, both being in the military and sort of now basically working and, and studying the military, is like how much that's being pushed down to lower and lower levels. So you think about World War II, you had army divisions who had, you know, who were calling for yeah, small artillery assets and, and, and basically access to certain types of, uh, you know, bombing groups, um, that could kind of do these really broad sort of supporting large macro scale sort of supporting efforts and coordination. And, and then of course you sort of start getting like basically, uh, you know, the Stukas, the close air support for armor and for troops. But that's, again, that was still on like divisional levels, army levels. And now you're looking at like platoons. You're looking at like, you know, special operations with like 12 man groups that are rolling into countries and leveraging strategic assets, um, from CONUS. And I'm, I'm by continental United States is when I, when I say CONUS. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking of like when we saw Green Berets roll into Afghanistan in 2001 that are bringing strategic level assets over to them and supporting them and they're disproportionately fighting. And that's the trend line that I think it's worth thinking about when we're, when that's why we're looking at space because all that space based infrastructure is what supports that. Um, that's where you communicate. That's how you call back home and say, this is where I am. This is what I'm looking at. This is what I need you to shoot and everything gets coordinated around that. Um, that trend line is going to continue. And so it's very interesting to be thinking about. Does the future soldier basically become a, a, a JTAC, a Joint Terminal Attack Controller, basically a guy who doesn't really shoot his weapon that much other than for defensive purposes, but has to find the enemy, look at them and say, bring the weapons here. And it's about bringing fires from, from on high. You're absolutely right. That ability to have a strategic effect on the tactical level near instantaneously. And when I say effect, you know, we typically think, you know, like you say, things that go boom. But when you consider again, you know, uh, the future cyber realm, there's a huge amount you can do to achieve an effect on target. And there's, you know, when you consider the, the myriad ways in which you can do that. It does. We're almost entering the realms of science fiction. Well, it here, becomes but. that. And, and conversely, um, when you have the single guy or asset that can bring so much firepower, if it can see you and kill you, that's again part of that cyber is 
te- uh, severing that link. Mm. If I can compute like with cyber sever that link and make sure he can't call back home and they can't see me with their digital assets and shoot me, I've also won. So, so another thing to be thinking about, and that's why cyber has also become such an important component of this. And also, uh, cryptographics as well. You know, if you can sever that link from a drone to its like base control station, then you're going to lose control of that asset. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, a lot of the, the communications and the crypto related to that is, is so, um, so carefully and closely guarded. You know, this raises a really interesting topic, which is, um, basically since modern warfare evolved as parts of an industrial based aspects of, of human civilization, there is this concept of a short war because it's so deadly, so potent that there's no ability to continue waging that war for a long period of time. I mean, obviously, we've seen that uh, prior to World War One. We've seen that after World War One, uh, but it was dis- disproven, obviously, in World War One and disproven again in World War Two. So, what about now? We are talking about the ability by small forces to wage unimaginable damage, uh, and of course, I'm not even referring to uh, nuclear weapons here. I'm just talking about the conventional realm. Through cyber, through calling in airstrikes, through uh, and and long range strikes, you can basically you don't even have to get close to a port to level it. You can level it from from all the way uh, back in another continent. And and also if you layer into this the much longer periods of time that it is taking to develop weapons and to produce them, just because they're so sophisticated, what does this really do to to uh, the duration of conflict. I mean, on one level, you have all these things that point towards this war in modern terms, peer-to-peer, being so destructive that one side will, will essentially be destroyed in in a short duration. But on the other hand, we have all the weights of historical evidence that people always tend to think that there's going to be a short war due to the lethality of conflict, but people find a way to continue going. I think that's that's a that's an interesting idea to mull um, in terms of what, what, what there is in the future when it comes to... A, a significant peer-to-peer conflict. I guess the part that always concerns me about all of this is that you, there's, there's an assumption, that, you know, along with sort of the, this idea that like people talk about the short war, they also talk about wars will only be fought by sort of robots and any at long distances in the future and everything else. Um, but the fact is the most important component in all these things is always humans and their ingenuity and sort of the infrastructure and the nation states and the industrialized nation states that sort of support that entire ability. And so, it's a bad assumption to ever think that we'll get to a place where we're having robot wars um, and that someone won't go, hmm, I need to look at the place where these robots are coming from and the humans who are designing them and not kill them. Uh, that 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 will always be a huge concern. And so, so it, it's a fallacy to think that wars will ever be completely short. And it's a fallacy to think that wars will never have humans be a casualty, a main casualty of them. Well, that seems a good place to end on, though I fear you've left it open for a podcast uh, grading movies and literature on their accuracy when it comes to military technology, but maybe for another time. Paul, Omar, thank you so much for joining me uh, today on this podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of the Stratfor Podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please stop by our forum section at Stratfor Worldview or send us an email with your thoughts and ideas on the topic. You can email us at podcast at stratfor.com. We'll also include some links to related analysis in the show notes to get the conversation started. And if you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, you can sign up for our free newsletter or learn more about complete access to our analysis and strategic forecasting through individual, team, and enterprise subscriptions at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that reveal the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor.com.